Well, this morning, uh, we're going to continue our series in Deuteronomy, Leadership Lessons. And uh, I want to welcome you this morning to Groton Bible Chapel. My name is Gary. I'm the lead pastor here at GBC. And I'm excited to dive into this sermon on Psalm 32. But I will just uh, affirm what Alan said last week at the end of his sermon. I am not going to sing this morning. Surprise, surprise. That would be a bad plan in terms of uh, people staying here. Uh, but you know, we're, we're looking at a passage, Deuteronomy 32, that is a song. And so I started thinking this week about uh, songs that have powerful messages in them or compelling messages in them. And uh, there is no end to the amount of songs. Maybe some come to your mind. Every genre, every era of music has songs that contain really powerful messages. One song, or the, the song that really came to mind first and foremost before any other, when I thought about this theme, was the haunting and pensive warning to dads in Harry Chapin's 1974 Cats in the Cradle. If you know that song, it's a song that basically says, be careful your priorities where family and career are concerned. Spend time with your children before it's gone. And be careful what you model because it will be replicated into your children's lives. It's, it's a really moving and powerful song. And, and every genre has those kinds of songs, right? Now, there's a unique thing. If you're a country fan, country music fan, there's a really unique thing about that genre. Perhaps you've heard this. While most country songs are forlorn and depressing, if you play them backwards, did you know that you get your job back, you get your house back, you get your wife back, you might even get your dog back? I, I dare say some of you will probably go home and try that. Uh, that it's not original with me, but uh, you get the idea. The songs have messages, and it'd be really interesting if we were to take the time to take a poll and see what, what songs you would come up with. There's a, there's a bunch that are out there. But the Bible contains a host of songs, even outside of the Psalms, by the way, uh, that are songs that all of them convey messages about who God is, about who we are, so on and so forth. Uh, even Peter and Paul, who write these short creedal statements in their letters, there's a good indication that some of them may actually have been sung as hymns so that the people of God would retain uh, the theology within, within those creedal statements. Now, when we come to the Psalms themselves, uh, the Psalms serve a host of purposes. Some Psalms were, were designed to be sung by the people of God throughout the day individually. Others were, were collective liturgical Psalms. I'm in a series right now in my own quiet time at the end of Psalms uh, that are called pilgrimage Psalms. They're the songs that God's people would sing uh, in a crowd of people that were going up to the, to the temple in Jerusalem for the festivals and, and feast days. And it's powerful. They, and each one of them contains a message. And Deuteronomy 32 is one of these passages in the Bible that is a song that contains a really compelling message. Now, last week, Alan, at the very end of Deuteronomy 31, he kind of left us with this cliffhanger, right? The last verse says, then Moses recited aloud every single word of this song to the entire assembly of Israel. So imagine the scene. Moses is probably in some sort of natural amphitheater kind of context on a hillside or something. And there's the entire people of Israel, probably two to three million people, listening to him recite the words of this song meant to reinforce everything they've been talking about really for 40 years. But Moses in this song, I want to make the case this morning as, as we're looking at these leadership lessons that for Moses, this is an opportunity for him where he is emoting something to his people. 
There's something that, there are a number of messages through this song that, that on behalf of God, he wants to convey to his people and he wants them to really get. And we'll see his passion and his emotion come through as he speaks this song over them, so to speak, as he, as he prepares to transition out of leadership himself. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 is a profoundly important chapter in the Old Testament and in the Bible. One scholar said that Deuteronomy uh, 32 is the entire book of Romans in a nutshell. And as you begin to look at it and study it in detail, you'll see that that's, that's pretty much the case. Another scholar said Deuteronomy 32 is the, is the key to understanding all of prophecy that follows after it. So it's a profound passage. We're only gonna scratch the surface uh, in our study this morning. And uh, with that in mind, we really need the Lord's help here. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what we read, what we study, what we look to apply this morning, Lord God, these are your words through your servant Moses to your people at a specific time, but ultimately to be applied into our lives today. And so, Holy Spirit, we need your guidance. We need your wisdom, your insight. And God, we need your conviction about the things that we need to take deep into ourselves in these truths and so forth. So God, we give you this time and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Moses writes this song and we'll look at three kind of big points categorically that he wants his people to understand as he kind of emotes for them. The first one is that he wants people to understand that God is our rock and that he's steadfast. And so let's begin. We'll read uh, the first several verses. We'll skip a little chunk and we'll read another section. We're beginning uh, in verse one of chapter 32. Moses writes, pay attention, heavens, and I will speak. Listen, earth, to the words from my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words settle like dew, like gentle rain on new grass and showers on tender plants. For I will proclaim the Lord's name, declare the greatness of our God, the rock. The rock. His work is perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God, without bias, he is righteous, and true. Verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the people of Israel. But the Lord's portion is his people Jacob, his own inheritance. He found him in a desolate land, in a barren, howling wasteland. He surrounded him, cared for him, and protected him as the pupil of his eye. He watches over his nest like an eagle and hovers over his young. He spreads his wings, catches him, and carries him on his feathers. The Lord alone led him with no help from a foreign god. He made him ride on the heights of the land and eat the produce of the field. He nourished him with honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with the fat of lambs, with rams from Bashan and goats, with the choicest grains of wheat, you drank wine from the finest grapes. Moses takes his people through this vivid and poetic reminder of who they are. It's not lost on me that Moses talks about God as caring for his people as an eagle that has nothing to do with your football team, okay? In spite of the fact this is the word of God. So before you come up to me afterwards and say, hey, you know, that's not what we're dealing with here. Well, what is it that Moses wants us to, his people to, to know and understand? Number one, Moses wants his people to hear and receive the word of God. He uses this really cool imagery. He says, may my words, may the word kind of land like rain on the grass and soak like heavy dew into your lives, so to speak, as a people. 
Moses wants that God's word would go more than just what has been spoken to them, what has been lived before them by by him, what he has written. Now they're singing it that it might penetrate deeper into their lives, into the lives of themselves as a community. I think Paul may be echoing this in Colossians 3 when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. It's this same idea that that God's word would permeate. And look what he says next. As you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. God's people in Deuteronomy, as we've studied, they were to put God's word on the door frames of their houses. They were to wear it on their bodies, speak to their children. Now they're to sing it. And the New Testament doesn't deviate from this idea. That the word of God for us, the entire Bible, is something that we, this morning we kind of did it in reverse, right? We sang, sang it first and now we're hearing it spoken. That it would per- permeate our entire lives. Moses wants his people just, not just to hear but to receive God's word. Number two, Moses wants his people to know God's name. Verse one, he says, I will proclaim the Lord's name, the greatness of our God. The subject of the song, Moses says, right out of the gate and all the way through is the name of the Lord. And then he drops a new name. He says, the rock. The rock, his works are perfect. Moses refers to a name for God that is new in the Old Testament. And he will repeat this five times, God the rock, five times in this chapter. And then the Old Testament prophets will kind of take off on this idea and they'll build on it. In fact, if we we look in the Psalms before we even get to the prophets, this idea of God as a rock permeates the Psalms. They use descriptors descriptors like uh, refuge, fortress, strong tower, foundation, on and on. That God is someone on whom we can stand and build our entire lives. As you get into the New Testament and the Gospels and Paul and Peter's letters, we see that this same idea of who God is, is attributed to Jesus himself. Peter says this in uh, his first letter. He says, now to you who believe, he's talking about Jesus here, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, he is a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Peter says, Jesus is either a cornerstone, a foundation stone that you can build your entire life on or he's something you're gonna trip over again and again and again. Some of you have experienced that vividly in your life. You've been investigating this whole God thing. You're wondering about who Jesus is, but you struggle. Maybe it's with his nature, that he is eternal God incarnate in human flesh. Maybe it's with some body of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount or something, but you stumble over him. Maybe it's your pride. And then, of course, for many of you, you would echo and affirm what you read here and say, yes, my life is built on Jesus. Both Moses, Paul, and Peter, all the way through the scripture, we see that God is our rock. It's what Moses wants his people to know. He wants his people to hear and receive God's word. He wants his people to know God's name because he wants his people to understand God's love for them. And so he takes them back through, very briefly and very poetically, his steadfast care for them. That of all the nations on the earth, God chose this little nation, this group of people to be his The language in Deuteronomy is treasured possession. And he says that God watches over and cares for him. He uses this interesting word picture. He says that he is, that Israel is the pupil of his eye. I think the English idiom would be the apple of his eye. It's something that's both valuable and tender and needs to be protected. And God promises that. And he shows through his history over and over again. Listen to the verbs. 
This idea of protection and vulnerability. It says God is talking of Israel here as a hymn. That God found him, surrounded him, cared for him, watches over him, spreads his wings over him, carries him, led him, nourished him. It's language that's repeated, vivid, poetic, and tender. God is our rock. And he has been steadfast to you. I wonder this morning, has he been your rock? Paul says in Romans chapter 9 that those who trust in him, Jesus, will never be put to shame. Do you know what it is to trust in Christ no matter what you've done? To know the forgiveness of God? To know the stability that comes from building your life on him? Has he been your rock? You know, one of the most disappointing and yet profound things I found in researching songs with messages, I'll give you just a couple of them real quick. Christina Aguilera's Beautiful, Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror, Kenny Rogers' Gambler, is that every single one of those messages, and there are tons and tons more I'm sure you've thought of, every single one of them had this singular message that you are the authority in your life. You are the only one who's to be trusted. You're the only one who can change yourself or affirm who you are. And if you believe a biblical worldview... It's nauseating to see that theme over and over again. The message of Deuteronomy 32 is, no, he is our rock. That we would know his word, know him, and ultimately that we would stand on, on, on his love. So our big point for this morning kind of comes from, from these, uh, these three points, and it's this. It's that God's word, for Moses it would have been the law, for us it's the entire Bible. God's word is sufficient, that just means enough, is enough that we might know him and trust him with our lives. God's word is sufficient that we might know him and trust him with our lives. Has he been your rock today? Who are you trusting? In the God of self? or in the God of the universe in his son, Jesus Christ. That brings us to the second big block here Moses deals with, and it's that God is a God of retribution. Retribution just means the just punishment of God of his own people, discipline. He's a God of retribution. We'll pick it up in verse uh, 15 here. It says this, Then Jeshurun became fat and rebelled. Now, Jeshurun here is just a, a term of endearment. It's sort of a pet name of God for Israel that means upright one. He says, the upright one rebelled. He continues, you became fat, bloated, and gorged. He abandoned the God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They provoked his jealousy with different gods. They enraged him with detestable practices. They sacrificed to demons, not God, to gods they had not known, new gods that had just arrived, which your fathers did not fear. You ignored the rock who gave you birth. You forgot the God who gave birth to you. Now remember, this is a song that, the, that Moses is reciting that they're going to sing in their history. He continues. When the Lord saw this, he despised them. Angered by his sons and daughters, he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what will become of them, for they are a perverse generation, unfaithful children. They have provoked my jealousy with what is not a God. They have enraged me with their worthless idols. So I will provoke their jealousy with what is not a people. I will enrage them with a foolish nation. For fire has been kindled because of my anger and burns to the depths of Sheol. It devours the land and its produce and scorches the mountains, the foundations of the mountains. I will pile up disasters on them. I will use up my arrows against them. They will be weak from hunger, ravaged by pestilence and bitter plague. I will unleash on them wild beasts with fangs as well as venomous snakes that slither in the dust. Outside the sword will take their children and inside there will be terror. 
Now these words from Moses, uh, like the words of God's steadfast care, are vivid and poetic. And remember that these were literal prophecies to Israel that unfortunately later in their history became to fruition. These are hard words. What does Moses want his people to learn here? Well, first and foremost, God's people commit three errors that we'll look at, but they're conditioned by a caution that we need to pay to, the modern church in the West needs to pay attention to. And it's this, they became fat. That's metaphorically, they became comfortable. They became complacent. They became self-serving. They became apathetic. For the church in the West, let's be honest, we are comfortable. We've said before, both Zach and myself, that if you find yourself in this room, you're part of the richest, most wealthy people in the world. It's just true. And it's a warning to us that not to become complacent. So what happens is they become a complacent people. They rebel against God and they do three things. First, they abandon and scorn him. God, that is. It's not enough that they uh, become comfortable. Sort of the vernacular would be fat, dumb, and happy. And they turn their backs on God. But they actually scorn him. The idea of the word scorn here is that they sort of, in, in a backwards way, uh, uh, talk about their time of following God as a waste of time, that he's actually a despicable waste of time. They have everything they need. And so they abandon him and they scorn him. Then the text says that they provoke him to jealousy through their idols. That what's at stake here is the idea that they, they intentionally and maliciously and purposely engage in the worship of the gods God told them not to, to spite him. Out of that same spirit of scorning. And they worship idols that they've been warned not to. Now, we've talked about this a lot too, about what idols are. For, in ancient cultures, idols were largely wood and stone. But for you and me, an, an idol, fitness can be an idol. Fashion or anything material can be an idol. My family can be an idol. The sense of my own comfort can be an idol. Anything that, that uh, gains a preeminence in my life for which I, I'd be willing to, to fight for that supersedes who God is, is something that is perhaps an idol and something that I need to take a warning and be careful and be cautious about. God's people provoked him to jealousy through their idols and then the text says that they ignored him and forgot him. Throughout Israel's history, God would send prophets who would warn them. He would send enemy armies who would discipline them. And the people, time and time again, they ignored him. And they ignored him to the point of completely forgetting him. Altogether, out of memory. Alan talked about this last week. That there were two kings in Judah's history. Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel. For whom the, the law of God was discovered in the temple and was read. And they had no memory of it. It wasn't a part of their culture. It wasn't a part of them as a people. They, they, it, was, it was completely forgotten. Because they'd ignored him first and then forgotten. It's a shocking turn of events in the Old Testament. I wonder this morning... Have you ever been ignored and forgotten? Do you know what that feels like? I dare say many of you do. I was meditating on this part of the passage, that abandoned scorn, provoked to, to, to jealousy, ignored and forgotten. And by happenstance, but not really, I was in a conversation this week with someone who shared with me that they attended here for many years and they were involved in all kinds of different areas of ministry here at the chapel, but no one ever really noticed. They were kind of ignored in the service that they were doing here. And then eventually they left. And they said they left and they were gone for a long time and no one ever 
reached out and they were completely forgotten. And as I was speaking with this person and my pastoral heart just broke and I said to them without excuse, I am so sorry that that was your experience here. But the vivid nature of what they described and the hurt that they'd experienced in our church helped me understand a little bit of Moses' language here about the Lord. Now, from an application standpoint, obviously we want to work to not be that way. That everyone would be seen, it would be a valuable part of the community here. But it helps us to hear that and to receive that, to understand a little bit of God's heart. And so God's retribution of his people, his punishment of his people is just. And so God says he will provoke them to jealousy and he will punish them within and without. Now, I think we need to speak a little bit to to the jealousy that God describes here. It's probably true that some of you, uh, and certainly it was true for me, uh, have wrestled with this question at some point. Well, wait a minute. What about the jealousy of God here? Isn't jealousy a sin? Why does it say that God was jealous? Well, first and foremost, when God talks about jealousy being a sin for us, remember that as human beings, that which we are jealous or envious for is always something that we don't own or that doesn't belong to us. Right, it's something outside of us. So I, I might be jealous of that promotion that someone got or a raise that someone got or I might be jealous of that person's spouse or their home or their car or whatever it might be. But it's something that does not belong to me that I'm envious for and it's rooted in covetousness, which of course is in the Ten Commandments. The jealousy of God is different. The jealousy of, in God's jealousy is always for something that, that belongs to him and that which he deserves. Namely, the adoration, worship, and glory that is due his name. That is what he is often jealous for. And in fact, because he is the majestic and supreme potentate sovereign over the entire universe and he owns everything, there is nothing for which God can be jealous that, that it would be sinful because it's all his to begin with. But God's jealousy in the Bible is always relational. Think about that. God's jealousy is he deeply desires to be loved and to be in a love relationship with you. That's profound. I found this illustration helpful. Uh, imagine a husband and wife are in public together. And for the sake of the illustration, imagine that the wife uh, begins to flirt with another man, maybe in a restaurant or something else. And we're not talking about like a, loosely, a loose comment that's misinterpreted. We're talking about she's engaging in, in really flirting and, and, and seeking the affection, maybe even the physical touch of this other person. For that husband to react with, with jealousy is not sinful. Why? Because her affections belong to him. And that's the kind of jealousy we talk about when we talk about the jealousy of God. And so God says that he will punish them within and without. Within are things like disease and even fear, deep terror. Without are things like wild animals and the sword of foreign armies that will judge his people, that will punish his people. But oh, brothers and sisters, we don't live in the old covenant and it just struck me so deeply this week that God's divine retribution, retribution his, his just judgment and punishment of his people for us on the other side of the cross fell on Jesus. And Jesus was punished within and without. Jesus was punished within and that God poured out his wrath and the punishment that I deserved on his son, that Jesus absorbed in himself the punishment of God Almighty for all the sin of mankind. And then as Alan described so vividly last week, God turned his back and he forsook his son for me. 
But he was also punished without. Jesus was crucified physically. He hung on a cross in the most brutal form of execution in the history of mankind. He was punished within and without. And, and our Bible is the story of God's just retribution poured out on Jesus for you. God's word, again, is sufficient for you to know him and to trust him with your very life. This is what Jesus has done for us. Have you trusted in him? Who are you trusting in today? He is a rock. And God's just punishment falls on him. Third big point this morning is he is a God of recompense. What do I mean by recompense? It's simply that God rights all the wrongs. God, God is a God who eventually will put everything to right. He'll square all accounts, as it were. And we see that he does this here in the Old Testament, too. And he gives grace to his people in the process. And we don't understand always why God does what he does. I want to look at two very curious verses in this chapter, verse 26 and 27. It says, this is God talking. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces and blot out the memory of them from all mankind if I had not feared provocation from the enemy or feared that these foes might misunderstand and say, our own hand has prevailed. It wasn't the Lord who did all this. Isn't it curious that God gives grace to his people by punishing those that he'd been using to punish them because he's concerned about who's gonna get the credit. That's, it's, it's a motivation that we probably can't fully understand. But remember that it's rooted in what God said a couple of chapters ago that the preeminent thing that he's concerned about is the glory of his own name. And because he is majestic and sovereign and the supreme ruler of all the universe, it's right that he has that as the primary thing. In other words, it's not arrogance of God to, to want and to act in such a way that his name receives all the glory. It's the right thing because that's who he is. And so he will punish the enemies of Israel. And while we can't always make sense of those things, Isaiah reminds us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, God says. And you know, as Christians in the modern era, we're not that different than the psalmist, right? We struggle when somebody we don't think deserves it gets grace. We struggle when someone we think does deserve it doesn't get God's judgment. The place I found myself this week is to just step away from that and to just say, I need to just be grateful that I had the opportunity to hear the gospel message at one point in my life and that I in that moment was broken by a love for God who knows everything about me and loved me anyway. And that there was a moment in my life where, where I surrendered my life to Jesus and this divine transaction took place and I understood that I was his and that sometimes I need to come back to that first love over and over again and not worry about those who should get grace or not or get judgment. Or not. That's his business. I don't know what your moment was. For me, it was, you know, I grew up in this church. I gave my life to Jesus as a really little kid. But there was a moment between my sophomore and junior years of high school, I was serving on a missions trip from this church as a teenager at his mansion in New Hampshire. I've shared this story before. And I was on a run deep in the New Hampshire woods in the pouring rain. And the spirit of God spoke to my heart all but audibly. Because in the first couple of years of high school, I was kind of living a double life thing. Sundays and Wednesdays, church and youth group, one way and at school, another way. And the Lord whispered, it was gentle. Who are you gonna trust? Who are you gonna follow? And I said, Jesus, I wanna sincerely follow you. I don't wanna be sort of bifurcated in my life. 
And the Lord surrounded me with people over the next couple months and everything changed. Stand in the gratitude of that moment in your life. And if you don't have that moment, you need to beat feet down here this morning and have that moment today. Well, the next thing that Isaiah tell, or, uh, Moses tells us is that God's vengeance belongs to him. He's a God of recompense. Verse 35, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. In time their foot will slip. Now he's talking here to the wicked nations that have uh, been conquering Israel. For their day of disaster is near, their doom is coming quickly. The Lord will indeed vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. And he will say, where are their gods, small g? The rock, small r, that they found refuge in, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let it be a shelter for you. See now that I am alone, alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and give life. I wound and heal. No one can rescue anyone from my power. Verse 43. Rejoice, you nations, concerning his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his adversaries. He will purify his land and his people. Not only is he God a rock, not only is he a God of just retribution, he's also a God of recompense. He will put all things to right one day. And note that it is not just his concern for who gets the glory, but it's also his compassion that motivates him. His compassion for his own people. And then there's this curious couple of lines where he basically is mocking the idols that Israel has followed, right? Where's the rock, small r, that you were following? Where's the, where are the gods, small g, you were sacrificing to? Where are they? Let them rescue you. It's all but sarcastic, although there's a loving undertone. It reminds me, if you're new to the Bible, there's a great story in 1 Kings 18. It's the story of the singular prophet of God, Elijah, going up against 450 prophets of a God called Baal. And they're to call on their gods to consume a sacrifice. And, and the prophets of Baal literally for hours are calling to their God and cutting themselves. And, and Elijah does what any godly and holy man of God would do. He taunts them. I think this is biblical grounds that sarcasm might actually be a spiritual gift. I'm kidding. But Elijah says, where's your God? Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's playing golf in Palm Beach. He doesn't actually say that. Maybe he's taking a nap. It literally says, read the text, 1 Kings 18. Because God is calling his people to account. Don't you see how foolish it is that you are standing on a rock that's not a rock? Whether it be trusting in some other idol or trusting in yourself. Note the last line of the song. Last line of the song says this, he will purify his land through judgment and he will purify his people. As we come to the New Testament, we know through Paul's letter to the Romans chapter eight that how he purifies his people, how he purifies me and can purify you is through the move of the Holy Spirit. It's what the Bible calls the theological word sanctification. God is the one who does the work. So what does Moses emote for his people that they would know this God who is a rock? And I tell you, pastorally, Moses is a pastor of his people and I long for that same thing for you. So I wanna leave you with these couple of lines the song is over, but at the, near the end of the chapter, it says this, verse 45. After Moses finished reciting all these words to Israel, he said to them, take heart, take to heart all these words I am giving you, verse 47. 
For they are not meaningless words to you, but they are your life. My friends, God's word leads us to life. His word is sufficient to know him and to trust him with our lives. Because his word speaks of God the rock, Jesus our firm foundation. Amen? So this morning, you know, it's, there's this really kind of interesting irony that we've been talking about singing. And so we want to actually end with singing some words that kind of echo some of the themes we've been talking about this morning together as God's people. Would you stand and we'll sing together.